In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. A few months ago, my wife, Melinda, enrolled in an oil painting class over at the Norfolk Botanical Gardens. Over the last few years, she has developed something of an interest in painting and decided this might be a good way to expand her skills. Everyone in the class has much more experience than she does, which I would find discouraging, but she finds invigorating, as every week she's learning something new. Her seatmate is an older woman named Meredith, who is a professional painter. And a couple of weeks ago, Melinda came home from class and told me that she learned something very interesting that day from her. As they sat down to work on their paintings, Melinda noticed Meredith covering her entire canvas in a coat of yellow paint. This would not have been that strange, except for the fact that the photo she was using as a reference had no noticeable yellow in it. It was of a camellia bush, full of bright green glossy leaves and big happy floppy flowers like you can see out in the Litchgate Garden right now. So why was she painting the whole canvas yellow? Melinda asked her that very question. Well, she answered, because if you do this, then it will make it look like there's a, a light shining through the painting from behind, even though you won't be able to see very much of it. She took out another painting she had finished and showed it to Melinda. It was a group of pansies, and here and there on the painting, some of the paint between the leaves and the petals was thinned or scraped or mottled just enough to reveal what seemed like sunshine radiating through the other layers, giving the painting an almost subconscious source of light. Now, I have zero ability in the visual arts, or experience, for that matter, so this may be a very rudimentary technique. But I found it a fascinating insight into the art form. The source of light coming from within the painting, but hidden behind other layers of paint, visible only in glimpses, yet suffusing everything else that lay on top of it. I thought this was brilliant. And this technique put me in mind of the story we heard in our Gospel passage just now. The story of the Transfiguration. We hear this story every year on the last Sunday after the Epiphany as we prepare to turn toward Lent. Jesus takes Peter and James and John up onto the mountaintop where he is transfigured before them. His robes dusty and dirty from the sandy roads of Palestine, are made dazzling white. His tired face begins to shine like the sun, and two of the titans of the Old Testament, Moses and Elijah, appear for a little chat. And the scene culminates in that wondrous moment when a, a bright cloud overshadows them. 
And a voice from heaven proclaims, This is my Son, the Beloved. With him I am well pleased. It's a fantastic, dramatic scene, one which has, for obvious reasons, captured the imagination of artists for millennia. And if you would like to see one representation of it, you can look at the stained glass window over in the south aisle, about halfway down. But I think its name, the Transfiguration, is actually a little misleading. Because in this scene, Jesus isn't exactly being transfigured. He's not being transformed. He's being revealed. It's a slight but important distinction. He does not take on some new form while up on the mountaintop. He's actually being shown for who he really is. Jesus is always, already possesses this radiance. But it is obscured by the layers of his humanity. That trip up the mountain serves to strip away all those outer layers of paint to reveal that source of light that lies behind it all. And so what the disciples see is not something new, but something true. And the voice from heaven confirms this. This Jesus who you are looking at is the Son of God. And he is beautifully beloved and gloriously good. That is his fundamental identity. To hear this story, as a supreme form of revelation, more so than transformation, is what makes it the perfect story to end the season after the Epiphany with. For in these weeks, since the wise men showed up in Bethlehem, we have been hearing all sorts of stories of Jesus' divinity shining through his humanity, looking at the gaps between the paint where his divine light can be glimpsed. And this moment on the mountaintop is the climactic example of such epiphania, or manifestations, of his glory. But it's not just a glorious vision that the disciples get while they're up on that mountain. There's also a directive, a prophetic message, the author of the epistle calls it. Because after the voice from heaven proclaims Jesus to be his beloved son, divinely dazzling, gloriously good, he then says something else. Listen to him. Pay attention. Do not forget this. This is important. Because when they come down from the mountain, Jesus and his disciples are going to begin their turn towards Jerusalem. And what awaits them there is the antithesis of this mountaintop glory. It is pain and ugliness, darkness and death. Jesus' hope is that by giving them a glimpse of his true nature, it would see the disciples through the hardship and the horrors that were to come for them, but all for him, but also, importantly, for them. Jesus brought the disciples up there 
to show them who he really was, yes. But also to show them something of who they really are as well. Because they are about to do something wretched. Abandon their friend to his death. Even as eyewitnesses of the majesty of God, they lose sight of that vision and so lose their way. From a place of overwhelming brightness, they descend into a place of deep, deep darkness. I think it was because Jesus could foresee this that he brought these three disciples up on that mountain with him for the subtext of this scene is, not only am I the beloved Son of God, but would you believe that you also have a bit of this same spark of the Spirit in you, this same dazzling light and glorious goodness within yourself? That is the fundamental truth of who you are, too. Do not forget this. In Christian history, there's been a long and vigorous debate over whether people are fundamentally good or fundamentally bad. Whether if you pulled away all the outer layers of paint, you would find a source of light or just more darkness. Different people fall on different sides of this argument, and depending on where you fall, determines whether you believe that as human beings we need to be completely transformed because our fundamental self is rotten to the core, or whether we just need our fundamental self to be revealed by clearing away all the sinful layers that have accumulated on top of our innate goodness. It's that slight but important distinction. And there's certainly lots of evidence in the negative. But moments like we have today, moments like the Transfiguration, make the case that there is a light that shines beneath it all, a light that shines most clearly in Jesus, but also exists in all of us whose lives come from that same heavenly source, who were fashioned by those same holy hands, by that original artist, who painted us with a base coat of belovedness and fundamental goodness and everlasting light. Do you believe that? That at our core, human beings are good? That beneath all the other layers, there shines a light that can never be put out? Like the disciples, it can be hard for us to hold on to such a vision when faced with all the darkness of humanity, maybe even the darkness within ourselves. That's why the author of 2 Peter says that we must be attentive to this vision as to a lamp shining 
in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Because even those of us who think that in the end light and goodness win out over darkness and sin, we are still at risk of losing sight of the radiance that lies behind us all. We have trouble noticing it, buried as it is beneath so many other layers, and we can forget about it or even stop believing that it's there. Which is why this story of the transfiguration is not just the perfect story to end our season after the epiphany, but also the perfect story to carry with us as we set out on our journey into the wilderness of Lent. A time when we are asked to stare unflinchingly at the darkest parts of our souls and of our world and not to succumb to them, but to use them to prepare ourselves for an even fuller weight of glory that is to be revealed on Easter Day. In this, Peter and James and John are instructive again, for even having given in to the darkness and abandoning their friend to his death, still, even after that, there is a light that Jesus will call forth from them when he appears on the other side of the grave and charges them to carry on his work in the world. Despite their cowardice, Despite their betrayal, they are still worthy of such an important commission. Because he knows that at their core, they are still good. So as we set out together in a few days <coughs> into the season of Lent, I hope you will use that time to look for the light. Take stock of your sins, yes, but in order to see them for what they are, not examples of the truth of your wretchedness, but obfuscations of the truth of your radiance. And repent of them, yes, but do so to create more space. For the light that sits in the center of your soul to shine through even more brightly. For beneath it all, Jesus wants you to know that you are dazzling. You are beloved. And you are good. Listen to him. Amen.